Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. Just about 7.34 in the morning. The show is up front. My name is Brian edwards Teeker. We're going to turn, as we do most Mondays at this time, to the latest developments in the world of COVID-19. Uh, our guest... And the person who's here to answer your questions, Dr. John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Schwartzberg. Good morning. Um, I wanted to, to start by asking you to help me make sense of a new paper that made a little bit of a splash, uh, but whose text goes so deep into the world of immunology, I am not sure I'm drawing the right conclusions from it. Uh, this was published by a group of researchers who all appear to be at Stanford in a journal called Immunity. They were looking at T-cells, T-cell responses to vaccination, both in people who've never had COVID before and people who have had COVID before. The only vaccine they looked at was the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine they found that there was less of a T-cell response to people who had been infected before they got vaccinated and uh, drew the conclusion that maybe the disease has in some way inhibited the immune system. That is the takeaway that I'm not sure I'm getting right from reading the paper. I, w I was hoping that you could take us through it and how to think about its findings. Sure, thanks. Well, first of all, the, the group that uh, did this work is excellent, and the journal they published in is highly regarded. So th this is um, quality work that was done. It's also very preliminary work in trying to understand the immune response to infection versus the immune response to vaccine or the combination of the two. And as you said, it suggests that T-cell immunity, um, and it's easy to get into the weeds very quickly here, so I'll try not to do that, but T-cell immunity, the kind of immunity we get that seems to be much more permanent, well, that really is much more permanent than, than the B-cell immunity we get. Um, that is, it can give us protection for a lot longer than the B-cells, which is the antibody-producing cells. So think of two arms to your immune system. You have the antibody-producing cells, and you have the cells themselves that can ferret out and identify infected uh, cells of our own and then get rid of them. So what this was looking at is how well that T-cell arm works after infection um, and then after, uh, in, then vaccination following that. And their suggestion was exactly as you said. So I think you got it right or you and I got, understand it the same way. I think the question that I was left at, left with, Brian, after reading that article was, um, what is the clinical significance of this? And what does this mean for you and me and everybody else who's either had COVID or has been vaccinated or has had COVID and vaccinated? 
And that still remains a big question mark in terms of what the what this really comes down to for us. So it is really more of a fundamental paper in laying the, laying the groundwork for understanding um, response to infection versus response to vaccination. But I don't think it tells us too much more than that. And, and the question of does this does it suggest that viruses themselves, the virus itself, somehow immunosuppresses us? This is a terribly important question. Right now, it's a completely theoretical question, and this paper, as you pointed out correctly, um, raises that question a little bit further. So I think more questions than answers right now, but a very important fundamental paper. So uh, just to drive the point home, they are measuring T-cell responses in a blood sample. They have not correlated that to any worse health outcomes. Right. So I wouldn't want anybody listening to the show today or hearing about this paper to think that, oh, well, I got COVID. That means my longer-term immunity, that T-cell immunity, may not be as good as somebody who just got vaccinated. Um, and that's certainly not the message to take home. You, you have told us before that T-cells are something it's uh, relatively difficult and costly to assess in a blood specimen. Has there been research like this on other viruses? Do we know if T-cell suppression of this type is a common feature of, of recovering from infections? It hasn't been studied as well as any of us would like. I think one of the things we've learned from COVID is that a lot of the things we assumed but didn't have a lot of data to support, we really have to go back and study much more carefully. So, for example, I haven't seen reports of this with influenza. There may have been some that I've missed, but I haven't seen that. Uh, we know with, with uh, measles virus, we've known this for a long time, that if you get measles, you are profoundly immunosuppressed. I mean, not just modestly, but you have a significant immunosuppression that lasts a number of weeks. Uh, and that's the T-cell suppression. For example, with measles, after having measles, if you've previously had tuberculosis, but your immune system was keeping it under control, an episode of measles could lead to a reactivation of tuberculosis. And tuberculosis is primarily con controlled by our T-cells. So that's a perfect example uh, of a powerful effect of a virus that causes relatively transient uh, immunosuppression of the T cells, a number, talking about a number of weeks, not years. Um, so that's probably the best example we have, but influ um, measles is a very, very different virus than, than uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. So more to learn. Is it reasonable to assume that if this paper is showing an initial COVID infection reduces your T-cell response to subsequent vaccination, um, that an infection after vaccination would also reduce your T-cell response to, to future challenges, future boosters or infections? Well, it's, reason it's reasonable to think that that could be the case. So many things in biology make sense but aren't true. And the only way to answer that important question you're raising is to study it. Fair enough. 
Uh, at this point, we should invite our listeners on with their questions. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. If you've got a question for him, the number 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. And while we're waiting for our listeners to pile onto the phone lines, Dr. Swartzberg, I'll bring up a couple questions from the inbox. The first comes from Allison Berkeley, uh, who <laughs> has written a rather long letter. Um, but I, I, I think it boils down to uh, what do you think of the fact that California, as of April 3rd, will be lifting the requirement that masks be worn in healthcare settings? Well, um, I don't agree with it. I think that um, in healthcare settings, certainly in the portion of healthcare settings where, peop- where healthcare workers are taking direct care of patients, I think masks should continue to be worn in those settings. Um, we have the sickest of the sick in, in healthcare settings, hospitals. And the last thing we need to do is have somebody with COVID, a healthcare worker with COVID, spread that virus to the patient um, and vice versa. Um, now, certainly, what the, we have standard infection control procedures. And anybody with COVID or suspected of having COVID who gets admitted to the hospital, everybody around them that takes care of that patient will be wearing the necessary protection to both to protect themselves and therefore protect other patients. So that I'm not worried about in terms of infection control. What I do think is that, um, uh, and this is purely a personal opinion, but I think that the last place we should be removing masks uh, would be in in, for example, a hospital. Well, I think it, it might be the last place because pretty much all the other uh, public masking requirements have already been listed by the, the feds in the state of California. You're right. It would be the last place. Um, we'll have to see what happens. I know this, this question is going to be re-reviewed again after April 3rd, so it'll be interesting to see. And I think, for example, uh, healthcare systems like Kaiser's, Sutter, UCSF, Stanford here in Northern California, they're all taking a a real hard look at this. Um, I'll be interested to see what people do. I think there's considerable um, differences of opinion about that topic. Uh, I'll mention to our listeners, because Alice wanted us to, that uh, there are several groups campaigning against against the California Department of Public Health's decision to lift that requirement. Uh, Senior Disability Action, Disability Rights California, California Nurses Association, the, the union. Uh, pretty pretty easy to plug in a campaign, into a campaign by searching on any of their names, if you are so interested. And it's interesting. Uh, let's take... Oh, I was go just ahead, Dr. Point out that um, counties don't have to follow uh, the uh, state health department Counties can always do more. They can't do less than what the state health department says, but they can always do more. So we may see this come down to how, for example, San Francisco County, Alameda County, et cetera, handle that, how their health officers address the issue. And individual health facilities can decide to be more cautious, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, any, yes, they can be much more cautious than, for example, the county or the state. All right, uh, let's go to the phone lines. First up, we've got Ella in Pacheco. Good morning. 
good morning. Thank you so much for your show. I really appreciate it. I'm Dr. Schwarzberg. Um, wondering if you could um, refer me to a reference. I work with a lot of older people, and I'm noticing that they don't seem to be aware at all of the potential of the vascular effects after the, in the initial COVID. Um, and so I'm definitely seeing a pattern where people um, get COVID and then, um, you know, some, a certain number of them um, then later have some kind of other incident that, that actually ends up killing them. And I'm wondering um, what, whether there are good references that you could um, recommend because there's not a lot. Uh, I haven't found a lot on the CDC or any other sites. Sure. Um, Ella, there, there are quite a few references on this. This is a body of uh, research that uh, has really goes back a good couple years and maybe even into the first year of the pandemic. The, um, we know that after having had COVID, and this is more common in older people than younger people, but, after, but it happens in everybody. After having COVID, um, it causes, well, it causes some damage to the lining of our blood vessels, and it, and it pre predisposes people to having clots. And these clots can manifest as blood clots that would occur, for example, in the legs, and then they can break off and go to the lungs, causing what we call pulmonary emboli. These clots can lead to strokes, and they can lead to heart attacks. And we know that in the year following an episode of COVID, there's a higher chance of having a heart attack or a stroke. So there's now an abundance of literature. In terms of leading you to that, I can't cite a particular reference, but if you send an email uh, to KPFA, uh, it'll get forwarded to me, and I'd be happy to send you some good general references on this topic. Thank you so much. Hello, that's uh, upfront at kpfa.org. Dr. Schwartzberg, like, Practically, though, like, what do you do with that information? If I've just had COVID, um, aside from feeling bad, then I now have a, a statistically elevated chance of heart attack or stroke for at least the next year. Is there anything I should be doing to diminish that chance? Well, um, not that we know of. Um, there's no evidence, but it hasn't been studied, of taking a baby aspirin a day to prevent that, for example. We have no idea whether that would make a difference. So I would certainly not recommend any people go out and do that without talking to their doctor. But I think the, the message here is that it's just another reason to try to avoid getting COVID. Um, and that means, of course, being up to date with your vaccinations. And, of course, the other things we've always talked about. Uh, in terms of personal protection. So I, I, but in terms of risk, I think it's just being aware, making sure that all your other risk factors for a heart attack or stroke are optimized, that your blood pressure is normal. Um, you're not dealing with high blood pressure. So uh, those are the kind of, in your lipids, for example, your cholesterol, those are the kind of things that I think you change the things, make sure those things are working perfectly, and that would help obviate problems. Uh, 1-800-958-9008 for your COVID questions. Next up, we've got Joel in San Francisco. Good morning, Joel. Yeah, hi, thank you. <clears throat> okay, I'm referring to an article in Friday's New York Times. It says experts seek more data as a way to need another virus booster. So now Kaiser has um, refused to give me my... Uh, <clears throat> I, I requested... It was six months since my last vaccination. 
they refused to give me another vaccination saying that it's I'm good for a year. I'm 75 and have um, high blood pressure and kidney disease and uh, they won't give it to me. And now this article is quoting one of their doctors from the Kaiser Family Foundation, Dr. Gounder. And he's saying that older people should get it every six months. He said, <laughs> he said normal, like younger people don't need it, but he says people like me do need it. But they've already refused me, and I complained, and they sent me a letter saying, no, we're not going to give it to you. So now right. I don't know if I should go... Should I should go further into the process of trying to get the shot with them, or if there's somewhere else I can go to get it, or what? Got it, Joel. Um, this is obviously a very hot question now, uh, but let me give just a little bit of background to it. Um, only uh, about 40% of people 65 and over, which is a higher risk group, have gotten the first booster. And that's very disappointing. And less than 17% of the entire our entire population has gotten the booster, which is very disappointing because we know it's both safe and efficacious. So I just wanted to lay that as some... What's really disappointing from a public health standpoint is that more people aren't availing themselves of something that can protect them. So to your point, the problem is that we don't have data to support the value of an additional booster in people at high risk. Let's say people like you, Joel, 75 years old with some other underlying issues. What's being argued now is, is the, because we don't have the data, should we not do it? Or because we don't have the data, but we know that immunity wanes uh, very quickly in terms of protecting against getting infected and getting mildly to moderately ill. But we know that that immunity wanes within a two or three months. <clears throat> we also, excuse me, know that by six months, we've lost a lot of the protection of the vaccine. We don't know how much. So that to that to with that background, all people can do is give an opinion. And my opinion is that for people at higher risk, if they want to get a booster and it's been six months or more, I think it should be available to them. The FDA has not licensed or given permission with the emergency use authorization, licensed the vaccine, the booster vaccine, to be given less than every year at this point. So Kaiser, don't blame Kaiser because they can't do it. And if you go to CVS, for example, um, and they see that you've had the booster before, they can't give it to you because it's not authorized for that. That's the dilemma that you're having and that I know lots of folks are having. Now, there's a glimmer of light out here, and that is that the FDA is reevaluating that opinion. And I think there's a very good chance within the next few weeks, the FDA may come out and say that the vaccine is going to be recommended for everyone annually, but for people at higher risk, older underlying health problems at any age, for example, that you can get a second booster if it's been six months or more. So um, just be careful over the next few weeks, and there, I think there's a good chance, and that's I'm just guessing, I can't, I'm reading tea leaves here, but I think there's a good chance the FDA may make that kind of statement. This, this has already basically become policy in Canada and the United Kingdom, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. The You're absolutely weighing. right. 
That was about a month ago. A similarly obscure information landscape have just kind of made an educated guess that that'll be the best policy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Canada and the UK made that decision just about a month ago. Um, sorry, sorry, we can't give you uh, better news, Joel, but uh, hang tight. Hopefully, hopefully something is on the horizon. Uh, Dr. Schwartzberg, we got a question via email. I'm not seeing a name. Oh, we've got, it's from Richard in San Francisco. Um, I, I, I think I can distill it down to, uh, what, what is your risk assessment of our local COVID transmission rates right now? Uh, he was pointing to the New York Times dashboard, which seems to show San Francisco having somewhat elevated rates compared to other big cities at the moment. I don't know. And nobody really knows in terms of transmission of the virus right now because we're not collecting enough data. Uh, the New York Times has actually stopped their own data. I think they stopped it uh, about a week ago or a few days ago, and they're just using the CDC data. The same thing for Hopkins, which was a fabulous site. So we have those sources that aren't really pulling in the data right now. And even if they were pulling in the data, most people who are getting COVID right now are being diagnosed with the rapid test, and very, very few of those folks are reporting it. So when we look at the number of cases being reported, I think we have to look at them with a very, with considerable skepticism in terms of how much viral transmission is there in our community. And the distinctions between San Francisco, which is a touch higher, uh, Richard's right, uh, just a touch higher in terms of numbers being reported compared to the U.S. as a whole, um, I don't think mean very much. So I pretty much stopped looking at case numbers. For Just anecdotally, I know lots of people right now who have COVID. And I think most of us do know a lot of people who have COVID or have had COVID recently. There's a lot of virus still being transmitted. But we can't, as I said, depend upon the numbers we're seeing. What we can look at with with greater confidence is the number of hospitalizations. And we can look at with greater confidence, the number of deaths. The problem with hospitalizations and deaths is that they lag behind what's really happening. Hospitalizations by at least a couple weeks and deaths by about a month or so. So it means that we're always looking in the rear view mirror. And with looking at hospitalizations, uh, the numbers here in the Bay area are pretty low. Um, the number of deaths are pretty low. Um, we're really right around where we were in the spring of, uh, right around May of 2021 uh, at a very low point. And we've been at a pretty sustained, relatively low point. Now I'm saying relative because uh, the numbers of deaths are still too many. Um, 250 deaths a day in the United States, that translates to an awful lot of deaths, well over 100,000 deaths in a year here in the United States. And that's uh, really an intolerable number. We're just used to a new baseline. So sorry to go on with this, but to answer Richard's question directly, um, the case counts are not very accurate today. Yeah. All right. Well, we can't always be hopeful, uh, but we can be forthright. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian.
Dr. John Schwartzberg is clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He joins us most Mondays after 7.30 news headlines to go over the latest developments in COVID-19 news and science, and of course, to answer your questions. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. I appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.